yeah, it was providential I'm preaching today. That'd be tough to do for 30 minutes. <laughs> Sorry for the long gospel reading. Um, my, name's, my name's Wilson. If I haven't met you yet, um, I'm the pastoral resident here at Incarnation. Great to be with you all this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to our gospel reading, uh, to Matthew. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus' baptism and his, and his temptation in the wilderness today. Um, when I was a teenager, I, um, that, I lived in Mississippi um, in the small town where Mississippi State University is. And the head of the whole landscaping sort of development for the university hired me one morning to come do like an odd job at his house, like a landscaping thing. Um, I don't remember what it was. I just remember it involved a lot of digging. Um, and in Mississippi, we don't dig with shovels, not because we're dumb, um, but because where I lived in Mississippi, there's about that much dirt in the ground, and then the rest is clay. So you dig with a pickaxe, and then you shovel out the loose dirt after you've like pickaxed you know, the, the hard clay or whatever. So it was a really hard job. Um, so this, this guy, I think his name was Tim, hired me to, to dig some like trench or something for some reason at his house. And I remember um, when I pulled up to, to the job, he was, like, he was dressed for work and ready to go. Now, this is the head of like, all landscape development at this sprawled out agriculture school. So it's a pretty high position. Like, he was talking to the president of the university all the time, this pretty high up guy. But I get here to do this job, and he immediately jumps in with me into the mud and into the sweat and all that, swinging his pickaxe like twice as fast as I thought a person could swing a pickaxe. Like by the time mine would thud into the ground, he'd already hit his twice. Um, so he was working hard. And that always stuck with me, um, that this guy in this high up sort of position lowered himself and came and worked with me on this job, which it would have been totally fair for him to drink coffee and just watch me do it and pay me to dig this trench. That's what he brought me there for. But I, that memory like sticks out in my head. Um, that is a little bit of the feeling that you get when you read through the gospel of Matthew, if you know what you're looking for. And you all know, know what, what you're looking for because we've been in this sermon series in the book of Exodus. Um, what you hear in Matthew is a lot of times a step-by-step repeat of the kind of stuff that we've been looking at in Exodus recently. So, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn of a baby being born, the hero of the story. Baby's born at a time when the ruler of that area had, had just decreed that all the baby boys are to be killed out of a political power move. All right, It's the same way that Moses' story starts. We learn that the baby and his family escape from, the, from this wicked ruler into the arms of Egypt. And Moses, when he was a baby, escaped, right, from that policy of genocide into the arms of Pharaoh's house. Uh, then the boy and his family leave Egypt. And Matthew has this quote of the Old Testament in, uh, in chapter two. He says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And that's supposed to make you think about how God called Israel, his son, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Right, we just looked at that a couple weeks ago. In Exodus, God calls Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, which if you caught in our New Testament reading, Paul calls a baptism, Israel's baptism, right? They're called through the Red Sea, through that baptism, straight into the wilderness to be tested. 
And then in Matthew, what we just read today, we learn that the boy, all grown up, goes through the waters of baptism, is called God's son, and goes straight into the wilderness to be tested. Step by step, the story of Jesus is rehashing the story of Moses, the story of Israel as a whole. And what that shows us is how God's final move of redemption is coming about. Jesus, God in the flesh, steps into the story. He steps into the mud and into the grime, picks up the pickaxe, and he starts reworking the narrative. He starts healing the narrative from the inside out. It was beautiful that we explain what we do in the gospel reading. We stand up because Jesus has come among us. That's exactly this, right? Um, This morning, I wonder if we can let Jesus surprise us again in his nearness. I, I think very often we automatically imagine a distant God, that God deals with us kind of from from far away, but isn't in our our mud and our grime. But Jesus, step by step, enters the story of Israel, which means he enters the human story, which means he enters your story, and he enters my story. And this is the way that God does his final act in the great drama of redemption. This is the way that he brings redemption into our lives. And it's so important to grasp, because when we look back and we realize the mess that we've made in our lives, the people we've hurt, the time we've wasted, the gifts we haven't figured out how to use or we haven't used well, when you look back, what are you going to do with that? And what does Jesus have to do with that? And if Jesus is far off, if God deals with us at a distance, it might be hard to imagine that, that God has much to do with that. But God isn't on the outside of the story looking in, right? In Jesus, in the last days, God has written himself into the story. So today we're going to look at the two scenes we read, uh, Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. Uh, and we're going to ask how. What does it mean? How does Jesus step into the human story and bring redemption from the inside out. The first thing we're going to see is that it's, it's by humbly identifying with us. So first, Jesus humbly identifies with us in his baptism and in the wilderness. Um, so let's back up so we can imagine these scenes. What happened? Um, it's the year uh, 30. It's the year AD 30. We are in Israel by the Jordan River. Uh, there are crowds of people scurrying around. This guy, John the Baptist, has come on the scene, and it's very exciting because for hundreds of years, there's been no bona fide prophetic word. There's just been silence. Moses had warned a long, long time ago that if Israel was disobedient, they would eventually be sent into exile, right? Back back to their slave status under oppression, and that's what happened. They were sent into exile, all right? And God in his goodness brings them back from, from exile and restores them, but, but only in a measure. Like, not, there has not been a full restoration. They're just a shadow of what they used to be. And so the feeling in this day is one of anticipation and expectation. There's something in the air. There's this expectation that Aslan is on the move, that God is about to do something again. And the first real prophet in forever shows up, John the Baptist, and this is his message. Get ready. It's about to happen. 
God's great move is about to happen. The Messiah is on the way. And John points to Jesus as that person. Look, there he goes. I'm not even, un, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. There he is. Um, John offers baptism to the people as a way for them to prepare, as a way for them to acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their state of exile, and get ready. Turn their face towards God, get ready for what he's about to do in Jesus. And the first thing that this Messiah does The first thing that he does, his first move, is to identify himself with all the sinners and with all the exiles, right? right? Right. And all the helpless ones. And it seems so backwards to everyone. Because isn't the Messiah acting acting for God in this situation? You know, isn't isn't he God? Like isn't he supposed to part the Red Sea again? But instead he's just one of the peasants passing through the middle. That's why you hear John hesitate a little bit in chapter, chapter three, verse 15. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Like it's the first thing Jesus does is wildly confusing. It is, but this is where redemption starts. By Jesus humbly identifying himself with his people. So it'd be like Jesus if he was physically here in this room today. It would be like him earlier in the service during the time of confession, kneeling along with the rest of us with his head, head bowed down and letting Aubrey come to the front and give the declaration of pardon while he still, still sits kneeling, right? It would be odd. It maybe wouldn't look good, you know? Like, is he confessing his sin, you know, with the rest of us? Jesus identifies with our sorry state without a hint of judgment. In his baptism, Jesus puts himself squarely in our shoes. He puts himself in your shoes, And he launches his ministry from that place. And where's the first place that his ministry goes? Straight to the wilderness. Straight to the fasting, right? The wilderness, the sadistic voice of the tempter whispering doubt and lies. That all too human place of weakness, suffering, testing. So Jesus' whole ministry then is going to be one of him identifying with us and operating out of that place, and going where we go. Um, so for instance, how often have you experienced a high of some sort, right? Um, some affirmation of your skill and ability, a confirmation of your call, okay? A big recognition for your hard work, like you've experienced something like that, only to find, like two seconds later, you're sunk into doubt and despair. You like come crashing down off that mountain. What the, the good thing we just received immediately gets tested in the furnace. Hebrews 5, 8 says this, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He walks the same route that we do. Look at Jesus humbly identifying with us all the way. He takes on our identity, who we are, in his baptism. And he volunteers himself for our life experience in the wilderness. Um, to make this personal, This means Jesus identifies with you and chooses to unite himself to you and walk in your shoes. Again, he's not looking off from a far distance, but has tread the exact ground that you've tread, bringing redemption to your story all along the way. In that place that you're ashamed of, or that thing about yourself that you don't like and that you're ashamed of, this means Jesus is in that place. 
he faces the exact same temptation that Israel faced in the wilderness to a T. Matthew makes that really clear. So he knows. He knows what it's like to feel hungry and that low-grade depression and to be tempted to doubt God. By, by entering the great story of redemption, he enters each personal story, which means he knows the heart of what you are going through like no one else knows because he literally put himself there. Like sometimes we imagine that God is kind of like a, a charitable donor, right, from this, from this wealthy land that we know nothing about, sending funds of forgiveness to us, you know, and it's great and it's helpful. But he's more like someone who was there and sold everything he had and came here and moved into the neighborhood and suffered the stuff we suffer and lived like, lived like we lived and mended the wounds and put, our, put his hand on our shoulders and forgave our sin and healed our self-inflicted wounds and the wounds that people have inflicted on us. He came near. Jesus steps into the human story and he brings redemption, not from far away, but from the inside out. And he does it first by humbly identifying with us. Second, he steps into that story and he also brings redemption by showing us the way of obedience. Okay? Um, God makes a major move in the Gospels, obviously, in a lot of ways. Um, one of them is this. We're going to read in a few weeks uh, in Exodus that God, at one point, delivers the law to his people. He delivers it from a mountain. And the people can't, even, can't get anywhere close, right? In the Gospel, he moves that forward. He literally, like, uncomfortably close. He gets in our human skin, and he lives the law. He lives in, un, in obedience. And when he does that, he shows us the way of obedience and faithfulness under duress. Um, so we're going to talk, talk about just the wilderness portion of this for a second. Um, we're not going to have time to go through each temptation one by one and unpack that. Uh, we're going to kind of take it as a whole. A lot of you have probably heard this story before and have probably heard teaching on it before. Um, a lot of you have probably heard this as sort of a launching pad for saying how you need to be memorizing scripture more. Um, yep. Uh, that's just true. I'm sorry. Um, th- it's that. It is a lot more. Um, so Jesus, Jesus demonstrates a whole, like, a whole way of life a whole, a whole character that has already been forged that is ready to meet this moment. Um, so for one, what we see him doing in the wilderness is setting our expectations. After your baptism, the tempter's goal is going to be to throw you off course. He's going to call your identity into question. He's going to call your vocation into question. Did God really say? Like, look at what the tempter says to Jesus in the first two temptations especially. If you're the son of God. God just said, this is my beloved son. And after a month and a half, the tempter shows up when he's hungry and says, if you're the son of God, right? And don't imagine like a red devil uh, breathing smoke and talking face to face with Jesus or coming to talk face to face with you, right? The whispered voice, the suggestion, right? The seed of doubt that sowed and then the easy way out right? The easy alternative that's just right here at at hand to grasp, that this is the stuff. And one thing Jesus shows us is that it's just not strange if that happens. Expect it. Expect it and be ready for it. 
when it comes. Be ready to stand. And then second, in multiple ways, Jesus looks, shows us what it looks like to keep our eyes fixed on God in the middle of this storm, right? Jesus' character has been forged, and he brings his entire character to bear in this scene. So scripture, uh, it has soaked his mind. It soaked his heart. Like it or not, like Jesus, Jesus was quite unapologetic about scripture, and we cannot marginalize it, Right? Jesus doesn't do so. It was in his heart. It shaped his mind. It kept him on mission, which is very important for us. It silenced the tempter. Okay? But look also at Jesus' sobriety, his sobriety of life. Look at his silence, his fasting, his retreat. Um, St. John Chrysostom preached on this exact passage in the fourth century. Isn't that awesome? Um, We're not inventing new stuff here. We're just... You know, I could have just read his sermon, probably would have been. Um, He said part of this, part of what's going on here is Jesus shows us, quote, how great a good fasting is and how powerful a shield it is against the devil. And that after the font, meaning baptism, men should give themselves up, not to luxury and drunkenness and a full table, but to fasting. Uh, We're uncomfortable with that kind of talk, We don't like that, but there is a certain sobriety, a certain readiness and poise and focus that all throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells us to maintain, right? To remain steady in our journey. Like how much more in an age of constant distraction do we need this kind of stuff? Do we need to follow Jesus's lifestyle? Like not just his theology, but like following the way that he lived and and do things the way that he did them right? Um, That's another sermon. But here's the point. Jesus shows us the way of obedience from the inside out in no small part by just letting us watch and learn and try to imitate him. Uh, There are times when our feelings are gone, you know, your feeling of faith. You've had a great spiritual experience in the past, but the memory's fading, right? And the farther it is, it is in the past, the, the easier it is to doubt it. We need something steady in those moments. And we need to live into Jesus' way of life and practice it before we're in the furnace so that when it comes, it's already there. The habits are there, right? We need to learn how to keep our eyes fixed on God, like a ship in the storm that keeps its navigation fixed on the lighthouse and can keep moving. So Jesus shows us from the inside this way of obedience, and that's part of him bringing redemption from the inside out. He's in our human flesh, showing, it, showing us how it's done, right? But then finally, Jesus brings redemption to our stories, to the human story, by succeeding where we fail. And this is so important. And that will only drive deeply into your heart once we understand the nearness of Jesus, Right? that he steps into our shoes and does exactly what we could not do. In the end, he shows us the way of obedience, yes, but our redemption centers on the fact that he succeeded where we failed. He did the story again and he did it right this time. Where Israel failed, exactly the places that they failed and were broken, Jesus succeeded. They tested God, they trusted in idols, right? They failed to trust 
they failed to trust in God. And Jesus, in each one of these temptations, pulls it off and does what they could not do. And when your story is tied to Jesus, that means he enters your story and brings righteousness to your unrighteousness. That's the mystery of, the, of a great exchange happening. When Jesus comes into your story and identifies with it, he changes the narrative into one of redemption and not failure, not waste, not wreckage, but redemption. So where have you tripped up? Where have you sinned and fallen short? Where have you failed to live up to all that you're supposed to be? Like, where have you failed to live up to what a parent or what a boss or a teacher or a coach, if you're in school, expected of you? If you, if you don't have Jesus, if all you have is your performance, then all there is at the end of the day is the verdict. You did X or Y, you succeeded or you failed, and that's it. And that's who you are. So much of our mental games are us trying to cope right, with our successes and our failures and trying to deal with the highs and lows that come from that. So why do our successes give us such high highs, you know? I would suggest it's because we feel like everything rides on that. So when we actually do something right, you know, it's not just good. Like we're, we're elated. It's not this like contented, restful joy like God had on the seventh day when he looked at the creation and said, it's very good. It's, it's good to, to feel proud and feel good about when you do things well. But so often we crash into a ditch because success isn't just something good, it's our lifeblood, right? We depend on it. We cling to it for dear life. And so we boast about it, right? Or we compare ourselves to others. And we crash when the high wears off and we have to find a new success fast because that determines who we are. And our failures, man, we meditate on them again and again. We watch the mental videos of our failures again and again. And we let them become not, not just somewhere we've fallen short, but who we are. So if you're a student, uh, if you make a C plus, it's not just that you made a C plus. It's that you're a C plus person, right? That's how you know this is going on. Or if you made an A plus, it isn't just that you made an A plus, it's that you're an A plus sort of person and everyone else is below that bar. To have Jesus bring his righteousness to your unrighteousness is to be freed from that slavery. When the father speaks words of adoration over his son, this is my son, my beloved one, in whom I'm well pleased. Because Jesus steps into your shoes and lifts you up into his story and into his narrative, those words really are yours because the father from time immemorial wanted to bring those words to bear on your head. You're my son, you're my daughter, and you I'm well pleased. Because ultimately that's what's happening in all of this. Jesus identifies himself with us. He lives our lives, right? He moves into our neighborhood. He retraces the steps of our broken human story so that at the end of the day, he can draw us up into his story. And his story will not be one of regret and failure 
and tears. His story is a story of recovering what was lost. The parts of you that have been lost or taken or broken, the parts of this beautiful world that have been lost, all restored, all recovered, all things made new and beautiful again. It's like we read in, De- in Deuteronomy. He is bringing you into a wonderful land that's full of plenty where there won't be any lack. That's where his story is heading and he draws your story into that one. Jesus humbly identifies with his people. He takes our place, right? He, stand, he shares our penitence. He lives our life. He dies our death, exiled from God. And ultimately he paves the way into resurrection life in the new world. Jesus has entered your life so that you can enter into his. And there is joy and there is peace and there is freedom there. Come to him and you can lay your burden down. Let's pray.